happy Independence Day week or actual day if you're listening live on his radio talk on Saturday morning. We're going to talk about white fragility. I have new thoughts on reparations. We will start with an Independence Day reflection on the Corey Act show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be Genuinely excited for this show. I have a prep sheet that I think is going to provide lots of fun, including all of the following. There was a guy on Fox News that said Jesus was a black radical. Yeah, I'll deal with that. There's a book out called White Fragility I want to walk you through. There is uh, some calls for reparations. I've talked about reparations for slavery on the show before, so I don't want to do it in depth, but I have some new thoughts. I want to talk about managing our COVID response as it it's starting to ramp back up again and actually talk a little bit, get this, about the 2020 election. Because in the year where we had Australia on fire, Kobe Bryant's death, we almost went to war with Iran, where there was COVID-19, and then we had race riots, then followed this last week with the Saharan Desert firing sand at us from overseas All of that is going to actually culminate in November with the presidential election. So I have some thoughts on that. But I want to start here. I know I'm not much of a patriot anymore. Like, my my patriotism level has leveled off over the years. But I actually love Independence Day. It's my favorite American holiday. I am, of course, a Christian first. It's something I talk about often on the show that I wish we celebrated more Christian holidays. But... There isn't any Christian ethical conundrum to celebrating most of your civic holidays, including the foundation of the country, where this Saturday, if you're listening live on Saturday, we commemorate, we remember the vote to approve the Declaration of Independence written by Thomas Jefferson that held these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, and among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And what I would argue is the greatest civilization in the history of mankind came into being. It certainly has its issues right now, but I'm even... I I can still feel such affection for what America was and the ideas that built it that I can even do some of this. Ah, yes, the Star-Spangled Banner. There are those, apparently, that want to get rid of the Star-Spangled Banner. Uh, I guess that's Francis Scott Key. Yeah, even in San Francisco, they recently tore down a statue of Francis Scott Key. And so what I want to do in this first segment together is remember the, the foundation of the United States of America in this way. We want to remember all the good that it's done. We certainly, again, we've got our flaws. We've had, uh, it's, it's not been a, it's, it's not been a 250 some odd years or so uh, that's been totally sterling, but I would argue, again, the greatest the greatest country in the history of humanity, and I want to prove that to you, that we're not perfect, we've got our flaws, but man, we have been a blessed people, so let's do that right now on the Corey Truax Show. Let's start here. This is how we have contributed to the world. Let's start with revolution. We know when we came into being, July 4th, 1776, there were lots of kings and queens still rolling around. In the 1600s, we got to the Magna Carta, or maybe that was the, I don't remember when we had the Magna Carta. That was a little earlier, I think, where we were going to hold kings and queens accountable to some of the same laws. 
but there were still monarchies, kingdoms all over the world. Do you know who starts the trend of revolution? That's us. The French follow after. Eventually the Ottoman Empire falls. We have all around the world kingdoms and kingdoms falling because it was America that led the world in revolution, but that also means it leads the world in this fundamental human right that there should be the consent of the governed. That those who are being ruled over, those who are being governed, should consent to the government that is governing them. Consider that's new in human history. That you, the people, should choose your representatives. That's new, and that's an American idea that has freed people around the world as that, as that idea left these shores and went around the world. We exported to the world the idea of federalism. That there should be shared powers and checks and balances. And you can start to see that fairly early on after 1789 with the Constitution being ratified that certain parts of Britain and in Canada as it comes together and other countries, especially with the Western philosophy that we have, start to use this idea of separating powers and localism for the rule, that there should not be power that is, uh, that is in one place and a faraway place. The idea of human rights, for all of our flaws, it is an American century that gives rise to the idea that such a thing even exists. I know this will surprise some people, but you know who led the world in the status of women in society? That's us. It wasn't Britain. It wasn't the Middle East. It wasn't Western Europe or Canada. Did we come, did we come to it later than you might have wanted? Sure, but we led the world in that. If America doesn't come to leading the world in women suffrage, if America doesn't come along with women as equals, I don't know where else it was happening. But it happened here and it got exported. This is a misnomer. There's, a, there's an, un, an understanding, an incorrect understanding I think some people have about how women couldn't vote in the United States up until the suffrage movement of the 1910s or 20s, I think that was, a little bit over 100 years ago, about 100 years ago. That's actually not true. The, the way it worked originally was you had to be landowning, you had to own property, and if a man was had widowed his wife, he was dead, and there was no son to take over. A woman could vote. She could, as a trustee, steward her husband's vote. Because that was, again, the, the idea at the time. Things were done by household. And so that vote was the family's vote, not just the man's vote. That's actually the thinking of the time. You can fact check me on that. How about this one? We're the most diverse place in the world. Some of you don't care about that. Some of you do. You know, there's a really filthy comic out there named Daniel Tosh. He's a big left-winger. But that's something that he'll say. It surprises him how the rest of the world, it's just so homogenous. And outside of the major cities, if you're not visiting London, the rest of England is really homogenous. If you're not visiting Paris, the rest of France looks really French. If, if you're not visiting the big cities in a lot of these places, you're only going to you're only going to get the natives, but that's not how we work. Not just in New York and LA and Miami, but across our fruited plain, we were the place of the melting pot that brought all people together. That in between 1850, the Civil War, and the, and the Second Industrial Revolution going into World War I, people that hated each other in Europe, Italians and the Irish, the, the Irish and the Scottish, all come into our cities and live in harmony with one another, at least general harmony, Oh, we are the kings of diversity on this planet. How about this one? 
I, I have some issues with our public schooling system, but we were the ones that came up with that. Schooling, education, was not something that everybody got. That was for the rich. That was for the connected. It's America that comes along with a Christian ethic, by the way, that on which we were built, that says from the very earliest on in something called the Northwest Ordinance, you can Google the Northwest Ordinance, one of our earliest laws, that we were going to encourage and supply for the education of every young boy and girl. And we didn't keep that promise to every ethnicity at first, but we did get there and we have led the world in education. We have led the world in charity. More dollars leave American pockets and go overseas than any other direction in the world. We are the most charitable people in the world. Consider the American contribution to this planet as an economic engine. The invention of the cotton gin, the invention of the internal combustion engine, the steamboat, the metal plow, air conditioning, rubber, the sewing machine, plastics, the telegraph, the telephone, electricity, the light bulb. I could go on. The globe was in darkness until the Americans came along with their electricity and their light bulbs. The globe was using all of its time in labor until the Americans come along with their cotton gin and their sewing machine. Consider the revolutionary nature of that. People sewing by hand in the dark through a generation of Americans become using electricity to get more garments they could have ever, uh, ever gotten finished, and now they're doing it in an air-conditioned room. Oh, we changed the world, guys. Going around on horses. What steam-powered trains, and then the internal combustion engine comes along, and we have this sophisticated transportation system in the car, and we export that to the rest of the world. Oh, we have contributed more to this world than the Romans ever did, the Greeks ever did, the Ottomans ever did. We are the greatest nation that's ever been. We provided the arsenal in World War II, and a lot of our women here in manufacturing provided the arsenal that killed Nazism in Western Europe and killed Japanese imperialism in the the Pacific area. It was our soldiers, along with a great deal of Western European soldiers, that ended the scourge of Nazism in the world. After After World War II, in a very tenuous time, we were the bulwark against communism, an atheistic system responsible for more deaths than any Catholic crusade or any Christian uh, any Christian philosophy, a deadly philosophy that murdered people, starved people. We were the bulwark against it in Europe so that it may not spread. It would have, we were also the bulwark against war, that the Soviets could not get aggressive to go to war with its European neighbors because they knew we were there and ready to crush them. We, the Americans, within 150 years of our advent, became the primary guardian of the environment for trade. With no real benefit for us except the economic growth, we were on the high seas defending everyone else's flagship so that they could trade properly and not fear each other. We are the people who put a man on the moon who launched satellites into space, that built the the technology for telecommunication and the internet that we all enjoy. We're responsible for over 75% of major medicines and medical procedure, uh, the word I'm looking for is innovation, medical procedure innovation around the whole world. And we're only like 6% of the population. We've only been around for 250 some odd years. 
and we did that. How about this one that I love so much? We started keeping real immigration statistics in the 1820s. And it is uh, is estimated, I remember when I saw at Ellis Island, one of the most highest impact trips I've ever made in my life was to go to Ellis Island. I highly recommend it. At the best we can tell, about 80 million people from around the world have come here properly, legally, through our immigration system since 1820. Since 1850, since the Civil War to World War I, it was about 17 million people came from around the world to here. More people have come to us than any other empire ever. People come to America, they flock to us because of what we offer. Here's what we offer. We offer a chance. We offer the ability to make something of yourself. And it was in places all over the world that the the common man, the pauper, could come and make himself a king in the United States of America. We have welcomed the world here. It's one of the many reasons why I love us. Now, certainly, there's a, there's a flip side to the coin I just gave you. But here we are on Independence Day, and I am going to choose to celebrate this work that the, that the Lord did in his providence allow, this coming together of an innovative, brave, courageous people on this continent that has seen prosperity and freedom go forth from it now for centuries. And we are certainly not that people anymore. I don't know if we can ever get back to it. Maybe something altogether new must be built. But today, I'm just going to be proud to be an American. When we come back, we'll get to do get to doing things that are much more normal on the show. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Act Show. Back to an Independence Day edition of the Corey Truax Show. Happy 4th of July and Independence Day to you. Find me or the show on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. If you'll connect there, I would be grateful. And wherever and whenever you share the show, it means a lot to me. Let's go here. On Fox News, there was one of the Marthas. Martha McCallum, Martha McSally, one of the Marthas, had a Black Lives Matter representative. I don't know if he's part of the organization or just an activist on her show to talk about the cause. And while I have made the point, I've made the point on the show that Black Lives Matter, the sentence, is not the same thing as Black Lives Matter, the organization. That's very important. Black Lives Matter, the organization. I would just call it evil. Its ideas are destructive. It's bad for humanity. Black Lives Matter, the sentence, is just obviously true and no problem saying it whatsoever. This particular gentleman said something that I have to respond to because as much as I just showed some patriotism that, you know, I guess for a country that once was, I am much more connected to my eternal home. And he says something that violates the truth regarding my eternal home and my God and my savior. So I want to respond to that. This is, I can't remember his name, but a Black Lives Matter activist on Martha something or other on Fox News. 
put up this quote from Martin Luther King, and I've heard you talk about Martin Luther King um, versus Malcolm X, and you said that he, you know, was an anomaly, Martin Luther King. Um, he said, let us be dissatisfied until that day when nobody will shout white power, when nobody will shout black power, but everybody will talk about God's power and human power. Do you agree with that? I love the Lord. And my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is the most famous black radical revolutionary in history. Oh, boy. Lo oh, if such a short sentence to have so many lies packed into it. Uh, my sister-in-law, who is funny, admittedly, and it's hard for me to admit because I want to be the funny one in the room. I was talking about this clip about this guy who said Jesus was a black radical, and her response was, you should get on the air and say, Jesus wasn't a radical, because you get it, you get it, because it implies he was a black guy. It's very funny, I laughed a lot. Nevertheless, that's not true. Jesus has in his line a lot of Jews, so picture a Middle Eastern Jew. He comes from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that line up through David. Along the way, we do know that there was a Moabitess named Ruth. We know that there was another Canaanite named Rahab that was in that group. So there's definitely some intermingling between maybe some more Middle Eastern Arab and Middle Eastern Jew. The thing he's definitely not is a black guy. You know, something else he's not. Not a white dude. I, I don't like the stained glass that makes Jesus look like he's from Scotland. That's not a good look. It's not accurate. Not a fan. I wish we could have done the art differently. Unfortunately, the Renaissance was the Renaissance. Okay. Uh, that's, that's their fault. I feel like people sometimes treat those paintings like they're Polaroids. Like, you know, that's not a picture, right? That's just a painting. No one was in the room. It just, those people were Italians and Brits and Spaniards. And so they drew and painted humans like them. And they were wrong. We got Middle Eastern people. And then was Jesus a radical? I'd say yes. He was a radical for the cause of the kingdom of God, though, and not for any of your earthly agendas. Let's, say if this, let's see if this gentleman has anything else to say. And he was treated just like Dr. King. He was uh, arrested on occasion, and he was also cru crucified or mm -hmm. assassinated. This is what happens to black activists. We are killed by the government. Well, and, and if you need context, if you read your Bible, it'll say that Jesus had feet like burnt brass and hair mm -hmm. like wool. I don't know if you notice, but our hair seems to be more like wool, and we seem to be uh, likened to that color than anyone else. And, you know. Oh, man. Uh, so there's a term we, we have uh, in Scripture and in, in, in Bible teaching called exegesis. It's what you pull out of the text, but the text is the boss. And then there's the, the counterpoint, which is eisegesis. You take what's out of you and you put it in the text. Uh, that, <laughs> that image he's thinking of is the, uh, the image of Jesus in Revelation returning. And that's, it's, it's, it's highly, figu highly figurative language about the, the coming king in his, in his hair. That it's not supposed to be about his physical appearance. Oh, man. You know, it's just the hypocrisy and the white supremacy in America and in the world that would show us portraits of a, a pasty white Jesus. Jesus was not white. We all know this. Yes, that's true. Jesus was not white, as I just said. Also not a black guy. 
What we're dealing with is just a matter of history. He is some, I hate to say multi-ethnic, but in some way cross paths in his, his, in his history between Jews and then some of the Gentile nations, a couple in his lineage as well. All right, so I just wanted to deal with that. No, Jesus is not a black guy. We'll move on. Uh, staying in this topic that dominates American life right now, which is race and racial relations, uh, Reggie sent me a Facebook message and first said nice things. So thank you, Reggie, for the nice things. And then asked about the book, White Fragility. There's a woman quite popular right now named Robin D'Angelo. She wrote the book almost two years ago, I believe, called White Fragility. But because of the moment we're in, that book is getting a second run. And so I want to give you its primary contention because it is out there in the culture. I mean, she was on Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, she was on Jimmy Fallon. She's getting a lot of TV time, making her argument. And so I want you to be aware of it and then have some biblical thinking surrounding it. So here we go. White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo has a subtitle, something to the effect of Why White People Can't Talk About Race While We're Bad at It. And if you read the book, as I have audiobooked it, she'll walk you through, in part, some seminars she does. And you can barely call them seminars because it's usually less than 12 people in a room. And so she, she will market herself to highly educated white women and say, you know, you can bring me in and I will help you be anti-racist or help you be not racist. For example, she will, here's a couple that stuck with me. There was a woman who was trying to make the argument, yes, uh, certainly, absolutely, racism against African-Americans is real, it's a problem. I am thoroughly Italian. My grandparents experienced another type of prejudice in their life when they were here in, in New York City and as they continue to move on to Philadelphia. And Robin DiAngelo's argument back to her is, and this is what makes you racist, is that you, that you would ever compare that to what happened to black people in America. So you're absolutely super de duper racist because you're even bringing up what happened to your grandparents as Italians. There's another example of a foreign woman who grew up in essentially exclusively, or at least almost exclusively, white country. I've talked about before how it seems like the left really, really loves the countries of Scandinavia, Norway, Denmark, and they're the whitest countries. Like there's no diversity in those places. And so she was expressing, I didn't grow up where you think anything different about African looking people or black American people. And this is, again, she's just responded to by D'Angelo in that seminar and that's why you're racist, because you, 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 because you think you're not, it's obviously the case that you, you have some type of bias. And so I need to introduce this to you, this concept. In the world of logic and argumentation, there's a certain kind of claim that's false called an unfalsifiable claim. When someone makes an argument that there's literally not a way to prove it wrong, and not because it's ironclad, but because they've not provided the way. And so, for example, take anything in the news, take COVID-19 or something, and someone makes the claim, if, if we continue having policy the way that we have right now, I predict the following will happen. Well, it is falsifiable. We get to look a month out, two months out, three months out, and we get to see if that person was right. It's a falsifiable claim. With Robin D'Angelo, her claim is, you're all racist. If you're white, you're racist. It's, it's all, one of the other problems with it is that it's groupthink. 
white people are just one big group of naturally anti-black people. There's no way out of it. And so it's unfalsifiable for this reason. You could either admit she's right, or if you protest that she's right at all, if you say, no, I don't think you're right, she says, well, that's proof I'm right. So your only choices are that she's right. She's, she's made up an unfalsifiable claim, and that's something you should, you should use. If someone says, you know, Robin DeAngelo's got some great point in right fragility, I would ask that question. How, is there a way to prove her wrong? Does that exist? Because her answer is, you are, and you can agree with me, and if you don't agree with me, you're only proving my point. So that's one big problem with it is it's, it's an unfalsifiable claim. Here's some other things I found as, pr- as problems with her thinking with uh, white fragility. Oh, I should have told you a little more about that title. Her, uh, I guess her premise is that white people can't talk about race, will get angry, will cry, like will get emotionally upset. And so the uh, it, it ends up being that trying to fight racism ends up being about the comfort of white people because white people are so fragile. So that's, that's, that's the contention. So I've already explained that it's an unfalsifiable claim that she illustrates that with how she deals with people in the book. And here's a couple other things about it that don't work. It's quite paternalistic. I don't know how an African-American person or black person, whatever the preferred term is, wouldn't feel insulted by the book. Because her premise is, it is all up to white people. And if white people don't do what they're supposed to do, no black person could ever break out of it. That's the second issue. It is groupthink. She's got white people as a category, black people as a category. No one can escape their category. No individuals exist. No white person can have any other attitude than another white person. No black person can achieve anything different than another black person. It's just groups. And in those groups, the white people have every bit of power and black people have none whatsoever. And so unless white people are benevolent or something and do what they're supposed to do. There's no hope for a black person. They could never come out of the, or, or come out from under the crushing oppression of whiteness in America. And that's paternalistic, demeaning, and belittling. And then it includes that group think. Putting people in groups is always a bad idea. And then I do think it tokenizes black people. Tur- turns black people into a feature of white life. So that it's a challenge for white people. Here's the thing that you need to do because unless you change this person or these people's lives, they'll never cha- they'll ne- they will never change. And so for those reasons, white fragility is garbage. There's a lot of good stuff even people on the left are saying right now regarding race. I've talked about white privilege and totally endorsing that idea. It's absolutely real. I don't know how we could argue against it. But... There's some other things coming along like white fragility that I'm willing just to stop and say, nope, you've gone a step too far. So no, uh, so no to that. All right, so that's the Robin D'Angelo book. Reggie, thanks for the recommendation to talk about it. If there's thoughts on that from anybody, you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax, or reach the show at Show at gmail.com. Next, I want to play for you some audio from somebody who was talking about trying to implement uh, reparations and how that might get paid for and what it would look like. So before I play this professor, I think he's a professor from one of the universities in Pennsylvania. Let me give you some opening thoughts. 
the idea of reparations is now quite popular again. Folks on the left and the secular left are bringing it up a lot more of having some kind of legislative package for reparations. What that would look like is actually has always been my has always been my issue because I think I've said on the show before. The idea of reparations is a mo- is a moral idea for a group of people who have been violated and disadvantaged for the people who who did the disadvantaging to pay something to the ones they disadvantaged that specific setup that would be just those who were disadvantaged get recompense from those that disadvantaged them and discriminated against them that's fair and we, this is actually going way farther than discrimination the enslaved deserves recompense from the slaver that's that that would be just and fair. Now, hundreds of years removed, that has always become very difficult. I'll give you the shortest version because I've done it on the show before. That becomes a problem because slave ownership was not actually all that common. You have, you have to have some money to own slaves. And so it was a, a subset of white people on this continent that owned slaves. It's a fairly small subset, certainly less than half the population. And so you have to then ask, well, for someone like me who probably does not have any slave ownership in my history, why do I have to pay? Why would I pay? I didn't do it. And so, and then for that matter, we got to then trace, chase, trace down actual slave descendants, which is hard, because if a black person immigrated here from Haiti in 1900, well, that person certainly doesn't deserve any kind of payment because... A reparation is to repair the wrong. And if the black person from Haiti moved here in the in 1900, or that his family certainly was not affected by slavery. And so there's not, there's not any practical way to go about this, to chase down the descendants of those who did the wrong and then have them pay something to the actual descendants who experienced the wrongdoing. That method has never existed. So... That's been my position. Here is a professor talking about how to implement such an idea, though. In the book that I've just completed with uh, Kirsten Mullen, From Here to Equality, Reparations for Black Americans in the 21st Century, we argue that the payments might be made in the form of endowments or a trust account, where individuals would be allowed to spend the interest off the account in any given year but could only dip into the principles subject to approval for a plan of action or a proposal that they develop. Wow, that is paternalistic and offensive. By the way, that's an African-American professor. And so even though, again, it's not, it's not possible to do with any kind of fairness, the idea is not an actual legislative payment, like Congress passes a law, passes some kind of new tax to bring about reparations, like transferring wealth from one group to another. It would be the creation from, I guess, my tax money from others, the creation of a bond, basically, where we, where we would be saying to grown adults, you can spend the interest on this. Oh, do you want your money? Oh, well, you got to show us a plan, okay? And if we approve... If we, I could get very offensive here, but if we, the folks who know what we're doing, oh, you can have your money if you can really show us what you're going to do, okay? 
it should sound offensive because it is offensive. Talking about D'Angelo's book being paternalistic and turning black people into some kind of token who can't manage their own lives and can't escape anything. This person is for reparations and has that attitude about black people. That you can't, you can't give black people just a bunch of money. You can let them live off the interest of, some, uh, of something that we'll create for them out of the goodness of our hearts. That should be deeply offensive. Here's something better than reparations, because that can't be. Here's the, here's the better thing. The better thing is finding a way forward. The better thing is moving forward and figuring out, well, what can we do now? What can we do going forward to try to mitigate the effects of historic slavery and then racist policy? In, in that vein, that, that should be things like education and charter schools. The greatest indicator of success in America is going to be education. We did set up policy to have minority areas have worse schools. All right, well, let's, let's fix that. Let's do that through charter schools. Let's do that through competition of education. There's, there's some tax policies out there from Marco Rubio that try to incentivize families staying together. I don't know if I like that kind of social engineering. There's the idea of ending no-fault divorce. There's all kinds of, I guess, some social engineering you could try to do, but that's the only way forward. We can't go back. There's not, there's not a moral eth- or ethical way to do reparations, even though the idea is a moral idea. But we can move forward, and that's where our minds should be. When we come back, I want to get into how we're managing COVID in our reopening, and then I do want to talk a little bit about Election 2020. We'll do that when you come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show. Welcome back for the final segment of the Corey Truax Show on this Independence Day edition. Happy Independence Day to you. I do encourage you to share some revolution information, independence today type of information with your kids. Again, I think it's way more important to share in Christian holidays with our families, to disciple our families in those things. But we do want a healthy country. Jeremiah 29 says you, we, we work for the, the welfare of the city wherever God has placed us. He's happened to place us in America. And so one of the ways that we work for its welfare, I think, is sharing its origin story and sharing a passion for the good of uh, uh, that it's done. I, I'm not asking you like to sit down and read the Declaration of Independence, but it, it would help if more Americans knew part of that document. It would help if we knew. Oh, wait, how's that start? When in, uh, if we knew when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands uh, which have connected them and to assume the powers of the earth, the separate and equal station, I forgot the rest, or uh, to, to which the laws of nature, and nature's God entitled them. That's how it goes. To maybe not know that part of the declaration, but at least know we hold these truths. Like what, what's our founding principle? You, know, you, you work somewhere, you probably got a mission statement. Maybe your church has a mission statement. Well, what's, what's the foundational principle, the core values of the United States of America? Well, we hold these truths to be self-evident. All men and women are created equal. They're endowed by our creator with inalienable rights. Among those rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's all just from memory. And that's stuff that, unfortunately, I have found even in my two nephews is not something that 
gets taught. And coming up, I quiz them on this stuff all the time. I apparently did a very bad job because it did not stick for, for most of them. And so anyway, it's not in my notes to say, I'm now off on a tangent, but it's a good thing to remind our kids, our families, the history of the United, the United States, because it is ultimately, it's been a good thing for the world. All right, let's talk about COVID-19. Here's where I want to start. The media coverage has just been atrocious. I, I think I've mentioned before, I listen to a lot of NPR, or I listen to NPR. I don't know if you would say a lot especially for top-of-the-hour news. I will get my top-of-the-hour news at 7 a.m., getting ready for work. I'll get it from NPR. On my way home from work at 5 o'clock, I will get the top-of-the-hour news. Just get the headlines. And what happens every day is this many new, this number. Here's a new number of positive cases. And it's, it's reported breathlessly, even on NPR, which is fairly even-handed, and like a disaster. We have to be discerning hearers of the news to recognize what we're hearing. I can't tell you how irrelevant how many new cases there are is. What an irrelevant number. Of course there's going to be more cases. We're going to get a lot more cases before fall gets here, and then when fall and the, the flu season gets here, there's going to be another big number of cases. That number doesn't matter in that we're in a global pandemic. There's a new virus going around to which no one has any natural antibodies or defense. People are going to get it. Everyone's going to, not everyone, a lot of people are going to get COVID-19. The relevant statistics would be things like, and oh yeah, that's another one. We're, we're doing this sheer number, just like here's a number of how many. Right, and also we're testing more. And so that's going to be part of it. Not a huge part of it, but some part of it. When you were only doing 25,000 tests a day and now you're doing millions of tests a day, you're going to get more positives because you finally caught up to the testing capacity that you need. Here's the stuff that matters. What news should be reporting. What percentage of our tests were positive? If we were finding that of all the tests we were doing... 5% 5% were positive, and now it's like 10, 11, 12%. Well, we've got a problem. We, re, we either reopened and started going back into the world too quickly, or we're doing it irresponsibly. And I lean towards the second one. that We, we can go out and operate in the world. We have to. It's a necessity for, for life. But we can do it more responsibly, either keeping the distance or wearing a mask, one, one of the two, washing our hands, and all that stuff that we've talked about. We, we can manage reopening the country in, in a more responsible way. So that, that number matters. What percentage of our tests are positive? Data that matters is what's our hospitalization rate? So for all the people that we know have COVID-19, how many are needing a trip to the hospital? And then maybe another number, what's our hospital capacity? Do we need to be doing anything differently to, to accommodate that? So that if, if a COVID-19 starts taking up a bunch of ICU, ICU space or bed space, what are we going to do? And are, are we getting close to capacity in any given place? That matters. That should be getting reported. The number of people who need to go from regular care to intensive care because of COVID-19, the number of people in intensive care who need a respirator, all of that is relevant to managing this. That if I were in charge of managing it, let's all be thankful that I'm not in charge of managing it anywhere. 
But if I were, those are the rates I need. If someone came to me and said, sir, there's more cases today. I'd go, well, yeah, yeah. You know we're in a global pandemic, right? Yeah, there's going to be a lot of cases. All right, so let's actually care about the numbers that matter. What, what is our, what, what are all those rates? And then we can manage it properly. And, and some of that sometimes will mean pulling back on some things we've already done. So in Texas and in Florida, they started reopening and they saw a faster, a faster rate of infection, a higher rate of infection. It was going faster than they thought. And they pulled back on bars. They pulled back on those types of places that people are more close together. And it's usually young people that it's actually the spike. The spike has come in people in their twenties and thirties. That's the spike of COVID-19. A lot of people in their twenties and thirties started going back out again and they, are sharing COVID-19 because they go into places like clubs and bars and they don't socially distance. They don't wear the mask. So that's you. That is the demographic, not exclusively responsible for the spike, but is largely responsible for the spike. And so like Texas and Florida pull back on that. Okay, good. That's, that's good policy. And we all still keep going to work and we, we open up everything we can open up and live life the best we can as normal, but then take those kinds of precautions. The other way in which, the media are really handling this terribly, is all the focus is on Florida, Texas, and Arizona. Republican Governor DeSantis, Republican Governor uh, Abbott, yeah, Governor Abbott, that's right, in Texas, and Governor Ducey, Republican governors in those three states. But you're not getting that with the Democratic Governor of California. California's seeing a spike, and not just in sheer numbers. Like, I, I could do the dishonest statistics thing right now. Right now, Los Angeles is now the, the new epicenter. Los Angeles County is leading in sheer numbers. But of course it is. It's the second most populous county in the country. And, and now, it's, it's also got a pretty bad per-test rate. It's on up there with the rest. But it's becoming more of the epicenter now. But you're not getting any kind of complaints from them. This is the other, the other thing the media is doing here is they have made it partisan. It's the Republican governors are the bad guys, the Democratic governors are the good guys, and I would say the data does not reflect that. When, when you look at the numbers, not from sheer volume, but when you look at it by rate, how many of your population, how many people have it, of the people who have it, how many, how many people need hospitalization, of the people who need hospitalization, they move on to ICU, all that stuff. I, I, yeah, I'll say it. It's, it's, I don't think this is fair. What I'm about to say, I don't think it's fair, but it's, it's, in, it's in response to what media have done. For media, it's the Republican governors are bad, the Democratic governors are good. The failures of this have been Andrew Cuomo and Gretchen Whitmer. Andrew Cuomo's rate in his state is worse. He, he, he's overseeing a state with the, about the same population of Florida I don't think Florida's even gotten to 7,000 deaths and New York had a, it, it was not quite 100,000, but it, by orders of magnitude more than Florida. But Florida has the bad governor and Andrew Cuomo has the good governor. It was New, it was New York and Cuomo, and for that matter, Gretchen Whitman, Whitmer in Michigan, who sent elderly patients diagnosed with COVID-19 back into their nursing homes that didn't happen in Florida, by the way, but definitely Ron DeSantis in Florida. He's the idiot. And those two are the winners. Now, here's why I say none of that's fair. 
handling this, it, guys, this is hard. Do any of you want to be in charge right now? I don't know. I know I don't. I don't fault Intracuomo, except for that one thing. He, he sent elderly patients with COVID-19 back into nursing homes. That seems inadvisable. The way I said it at the beginning of this whole process, there was no pandemic practice. No one got to practice, right? So you're just making decisions with the information you got. And so I got very little criticism for any given governor. But I'm talking about the media here. If we're going to go by sheer how much of your population, what percentage has it or has died from it, Gretchen Whitmer, Michigan, has been a disaster. With you, you want to hate on uh, people, want to hate on Texas and Florida and Arizona. All of their rates are still better than Michigan and, and New York, but and better than California. That's happening right now, but they have Republican governors, and so they're the bad guys. That's what the media has done. One more thought on this. We'll move on. There seems to be a desire to blame the spread primarily on the reopening, the reopening of the United States. But I got to toss out some logic here. Texas and Florida started reopening on May the 4th. I went and looked this up from the, go- the governor's orders. May the 4th, they started their reopening. We really don't start seeing a spike in all of these numbers until after Memorial Day, which was the 25th. So we have May the 4th. Everybody go out. You're, you're allowed to go do things again in those states. And then, we re- I'm sorry, it's not even Memorial Day. We really don't start seeing the spikes till about two weeks ago. Uh, somewhere around the 14th or 15th. I think there is some correlation here between what happened on Memorial Day that caused a lot of the spread, possibly, and not the reopening. Because what we have is reopening on May the 4th, and so one week goes by, two weeks goes by, three, four, five weeks go by, and there's not a big disaster. Everything was fine. But you know what happens on Memorial Day? George Floyd. You know what happens two weeks after that in cities all over these states? In Tallahassee, in in Orlando, in Miami, in Austin, in Dallas, in San Antonio, in Houston, in Phoenix, giant protest, which I don't oppose by any stretch. So I oppose the rioting, but the protests were for just cause. You, do you think maybe there was an effect of a bunch of people in a place screaming loudly, some wearing masks, some not, some not that might have affected it? I think we need to look at the logic of blaming the reopening, which seemed to be going fine for five and six weeks before all of those protests broke out. Final thing. I might, I might have to take this into some bonus, but let's start here. We've got the 2020 election coming up in November. I'm positive I will not be voting for either of the major party candidates. I may not vote in that presidential candidate at race, that race at all. What I'm starting to notice is this is an election with no vision. Neither of the party's major candidates have any idea what it is they want to accomplish. They just know the other guy is really bad. I'm going to play for you now the first lady. I call Sean Hannity is the first lady. We all know Sean Hannity loves Donald Trump way more than Melania does. Sean Hannity asking Donald Trump an absolute softball question and the president not being able to handle it because we have an election coming that has no vision. Here in 131 days from now, at some point in the night or early morning, we can now project Donald J. Trump has been reelected the 45th president of the United States. Let's talk. How do you... What's at stake in this election as you compare and contrast, and what is what are your top priority items for a second term? 
this is the easiest question for a politician. What is your agenda? What do you want to accomplish? Oh, man, and, 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 and number two, I want to see if we can make those tax cuts permanent. Oh, there's going to be some judge judgeships likely come open, and we, and we want to fill those up. I'd like to see something more happen on, on, on deregulation of, of this particular part of the economy, the energy sector, something like that. There's an agenda. Or for how about Donald Trump? How about you want to build your wall and have Mexico pay for it, which you never did? This is the easiest question a politician can get asked. This is what the president does with it. Well, one of the things that will be really great, you know, the word experience is still good. I always say talent is more important than experience. I've always said that. But the word experience is a very important word. It's in a very important meaning. I never did this before. I never slept over in Washington. I was in Washington, I think, 17 times. All of a sudden, I'm president of the United States. You know the story. I'm riding down Pennsylvania Avenue. with That goes on for like 20 more seconds. What do you want your agenda to be? Well, you know, experience is very important. I, I used to just not, I haven't really even slept over here, and then now I'm president of the United States. The problem is you go to Joe Biden, and it's not any different. It's just Donald Trump is bad. And if, if Trump would have ever gotten to an answer, the question is, the, the left is destructive, and they'll destroy everything. And so I said to my dad here recently, Anytime either of the, oh, I think I said it to my brother-in-law, Mark. Hi, Mark, if you're listening. That anytime one of the sides says something bad about the other side, I go, yep, that's right. That's totally true. Good call. Anytime a, anytime a liberal says something about a conservative or a conservative says something about a liberal, typically I'm like, yep, that's, that's good. That's true. That's true. But there's nothing constructive. There is no agenda. And that's what we're in need of. When was the last time you actually heard a politician say something about education policy? Something they wanted to do in the energy sector, space exploration, ingenuity, spurning ingenuity in the economy, or not spurning, sparking, sparking ingenuity in the economy. These are not, there's no agenda anymore. It's just those people over there are terrible, and they say right back to them, no, you guys are terrible, and girls, girls, you're both right. And I believe that's a reference to the Incredibles I just made. It's a very funny scene. You're both terrible, okay? Happy Independence Day, everybody. Looks like I won't have to do any bonus. I just wanted to make that point, that the election we're going into seems to have no vision on either side whatsoever. I'm grateful when you listen to the show, when you share the show. It's highly appreciated. Thank you for listening on His Radio Talk 91.9, 92.9. Thanks for listening to the podcast. We'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. Until then, peace and love.